Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Dustports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everyone to season two, episode 24 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast, one we're calling why traditional buy-ins aren't the ideal solution for growing group practices. I get this question a lot. A lot of people come into group practices trying to solve the associate equity problem with a historical mindset of the way it's always been done. So I'm gonna take this thing apart. We're gonna talk a little bit about value, valuation, buy-ins, collateralization, and a lot of other words I don't even understand. It'll surely be a note-taking episode. So get your pad and pen ready another cup of that wonderful meal of coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Welcome everyone once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports. Thanks so much for joining me today and making a little bit of time. We really appreciate all of you and our growing audience, um, and frankly, all the, the great compliments we get on the podcast, um, since I host almost all of them, I really do appreciate it. I know DeWalker does as well. And we are in the same um, sort of train of thought or subject matter um, for this period of associates, partnerships, equity, and all that kind of good stuff. You have, um, if you've been a follower of ours for a long time, you know that Attracting, motivating, and retaining associates is the number one problem of every group practice. If you are going to build a group and you haven't given the associate conundrum much thought, you're going to be in a world of hurt very quickly. Um, If you are currently an owner or a partner in a group practice, um, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about, and you may need to refine your solution. There are multiple ways to skin this cat. Uh, and, you know, I, I've had the opportunity to, to speak about this on a webinar series we're doing with Gary Bird from SMC National uh, and a couple of other, other industry professionals and also spoke about it from the stage um, at a, a recent conference, Mark Costas's Dental Success Summit out in Phoenix. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, but this is, and, and we've actually written a white paper on this that I'll probably link to in the show notes and allow you to download it for those who like to read some of these things. Um, but the thing about associates is really, it, 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 from my perspective, it starts with the following. And that is that if you're going to build a group practice, it is going to be based on people generating dentistry outside of yourself. So who are those people going to be um, and, and what are your um, abilities to attract and retain and, and even develop them? So if you're going into building a group uh, and you're not going to create a pathway for these associates to become partners in some way, shape, manner, or form, whatever it may be, if they are simply just going to be associates and associates only, hired guns, essentially, um, you've got to create 
a great work environment for them. You've got to create some skill development programs for them. You've got to be a master recruiter because there is going to be constant turnover and you need to be okay with that. But if, if you are going to have constant turnover, you've got to have a pipeline of candidates ready to replenish them. Um, the other thing is because of the uh, increased rate of turnover, it really does place a lot of uh, stress on your ability to develop their skills more quickly, to create uh, good clinical outcomes. Uh, if, you're, if you don't have a recruiting process and you don't have a development process, you just have a revolving door that's gonna weed through patients at an alarming rate. Um, that is a problematic business to, to build and uh, beyond challenging to scale. Um, that's a roundabout way of saying, I don't advocate that you do that. So let's talk about pathways to becoming a partner. I, you've heard me say, you've heard me and Walker say on multiple occasions that um, we really believe uh, people go to dental school, they choose to go to dental school because they're more entrepreneurially minded than arguably some of their um, medical colleagues, I'll say. And I really believe that to be true. I believe it's true historically, and I still believe it's true today, though it is changing. For people who are entrepreneurially minded, and, and you know, dentists are professionals, obviously, um, they they view ownership, uh, partnership, and and the ability to have a seat at the table um, from a, a merit standpoint. And and a lot of them don't want to be just associates. They want to be partners. They want to belong. They want to have a seat at the table. They want to feel like they have a, a stake in the future they're helping you create. So I think having a partnership uh, pathway for these associates is critically important to recruiting a higher level of candidate. Um, and I, I believe that that's something that if I'm building a group practice, it absolutely has to be a fundamental. So the next question is, how do you go about it? And this is really the subject of, of today uh, beyond just the build up to it. Traditionally, dentistry has been, um, by and large, a solo business owner, solo dentist in a single location. He or she owns the practice for a while, uh, brings in an associate in potentially some type of a transition program, allows them to buy part of the business in some way, shape, manner, or form. And then over some period of time, they either buy out the remaining portion of the business or, or buy out the remainder in its entirety when the senior dentist, the founder, um, transitions out or rides off into the sunset and retires or something like that. Um, short of just a straight practice sale, meaning I own the business today, I'm selling it to you today, you're the owner tomorrow after the ink dries on the paper and the cash changes hands, and then I'm I'm out of the picture. You know, the transactional piece notwithstanding, traditional partnerships have been fractional buy-in over some period of time, buy out the remainder at some point. That's the transition plan. How you lock in value, what the valuation is, all that other kind of stuff is is kind of a sidebar conversation. But so let's talk about that traditional buy-in for just a second because I think that still works in a lot of solo practices. Um, and you can make a really good case that that type of methodology um, is uh, appropriate for solo practices. Um, what does it mean and why is it not 
the best course of action in a group practice? There are a number of reasons for this. So first and foremost, let's talk about the hypothetical group practice that you are building. Um, you or your partners or something like that. You're you're growing the business through either de novos or acquisitions or a blend of both, and you're using bank funds to do it. So you're taking on debt and leverage to for those new locations. Um, you are personally guaranteeing the loans uh, with the bank for quite a while until you can shift to a corporate guarantor status. And that probably ain't going to happen until four to $5 million in EBITDA. And that's a really big business. So just, you know, count on the fact that you and your partner or partners or you yourself alone are going to be personally guaranteeing loans for a while to build a business. Um, as the business grows or in the early stages of growth, understandably, the business has um, more debt leverage. It has lower levels of EBITDA. You're getting your systems and processes in place. Um, the business probably doesn't value extremely highly at that point. You're not building it for a short-term flip, meaning like a 12-month process. You're probably on like a five-year growth path, which is what most people are. So they are um, paying it forward. They're making investments in the business um, getting the business to perform at a higher level, getting it to generate more uh, margin in terms of percentage and certainly more EBITDA dollars. And at the end of that three to four to five, 10 year run, we all hope and expect the business to value more highly because it's generating more EBITDA. You get turns on the multiple, there are more efficiencies. It's just a more successful business. I think that all stands to reason. So, if we allow an associate to buy in a large percentage of potentially the practice that he or she works in, or buy in a large dollar amount of the entire business, probably smaller fraction, but still a large buy-in uh, dollar amount, you can make a really good case that their buy-in is buying part of the business when the value is more highly suppressed. And that type of a, an early stage discount, if you will, is probably really great for the associate because the amount of debt that they're going to guarantee on the buy-in is far less than what you're guaranteeing across the entire organization. Um, but you're the one who's taken all of the initial risks to start the business. You're the one uh, who had the vision. You're the one who's uh, with your leadership team implementing the secret sauce in terms of systems and processes. And, and all of that is really, you know, your genius and your risk. And for them to simply go to the bank, take on a half a million dollar loan or something like that, um, and buy into the business, they're probably buying in at a, a relatively suppressed value at an early stage when you've really borne most of the risk. Great deal for them, arguably not a really great deal for you. Here's the other aspect to it. If they borrow a lot of money, and I don't know what a lot of money is, maybe it's a half a million dollars, maybe it's a million dollars, you know, just whatever the number is, they're going to personally guarantee the loan. However, they're buying into your business. So the corporate guarantor or the business itself is going to be the one to backstop the loan. Well, what, what does that exactly mean? What that means is that 
there's a cross-collateral relationship between them being the borrower and making the payments on the loan, but it's showing up um, in your total credit profile for the business, and it will hamper your ability to draw down more funds in the future for your own expansion. And the rationale behind that from a banking context is one whereby the bank, you know, if, if the if the associate is personally guaranteeing the loan, they're making the payments. If for some reason they stop making the payments or uh, stop making payments, or God forbid, default on it, the bank doesn't want to own part of your business. Okay, they want to be made whole when the associate can no longer make those payments. So they're going to come to you um, to satisfy the remaining uh, uh, aspects of the loan. That's why it's going to impact your ability to draw upon more funds in the future. So the key here is really understanding your growth strategy from a context of how fast you want to grow um, and and what the dollars are going to be that you're going to borrow on an annual basis. You, you hear us talk a lot about banking in this context, and I'm not going to go really deep into that today. We'll do that on some subsequent podcasts. But um, suffice to say, if you've got a, a growth strategy in mind of you know two or three locations per year, um, uh, you know, and it also depends on how much they're going to cost in terms of build out or acquisition. But you're going to probably be drawing upon a, a healthy number of uh, bank funds to continue the expansion. If you've got a cross collateralized situation with an associate who bought in uh, to the business. Um, and borrowed a half a million dollars to do it, um, that could hamper your ability to draw upon more funds in the future. It ultimately depends on how much debt you've got presently, what your EBITDA uh, dollar levels are, what the banking relationship itself is, all that kind of stuff. But suffice to say, if you get an associate buying in to a large degree, it will probably impact your ability for future growth over the horizon. The next thing to consider on this for you is the following. Most banking uh, loan covenants require the proceeds from the, from the material sale of equity, they require the proceeds to be paid against any principal you have in existing debt, right? What, what that exactly means is that if I'm the associate, and I'm borrowing a half a million dollars from a bank, and I'm buying in to be your partner in the entire business or in one location, the chances are very good that you can't simply take my half a million dollars and uh, buy a beach house. You can't take my half a million dollars and um, buy a, uh, uh, you know, a real estate piece of property that's going to house the uh, the practice, you probably can't use my half a million dollars to go out and buy or build a new location. You are probably going to have to use my half a million dollars and apply it to the outstanding principle of the existing debt you have on the business. And that is critically important. Every, uh, yeah, I'll just go out and say it. Every group we work with has debt of some level on their business. I, I have yet to work with a group um, that is carrying no debt. Um, I'm sure there are some out there. I just haven't worked with any of them. So um, at this stage, you really do 
want to understand, um, you know, how the proceeds um, uh, of any type of a buy-in are going to be used and what the governing documents say as it relates to, um, uh, you know, how you can use those funds after someone buys in whatever the dollar amount is. So it doesn't free up a ton of capital for growth from an associate buy-in standpoint in most loan covenants. You wanna check that with your bank. All banks are a little bit different. It may be structured differently. You may be carrying less debt or there may be some other um, factors uh, impacting that. But suffice to say, that's something you do wanna keep top of mind. So. Between the, the suppressed valuation context um, of where your business sits and the amount, uh, the, the percentage that the dollars would translate into from an associate buy-in, um, that's really the biggest concern because equity is going to be your most valuable currency going forward for either growth or exit. And, and I think it's advisable for you to to treat that with the respect that you should and not discount it and not take a discount on it too early on unless it's an extreme situation. But you also want to be sure on the cross-collateralization piece and the proceeds of the buy-in on how it could be used. Now, all of this works just fine in a solo practice because the growth trajectory of a solo practice is much lower and the valuation is really more fixed, if you will, either from a from a multiple of EBITDA or a percentage of collection standpoint. So the, the growth in equity is not as substantial. The opportunity for it, at least, is not as substantial in a solo practice as it is in a group practice. So everything I've talked about in a group setting doesn't necessarily hold true in a solo practice. And that's why a lot of this still works just fine. Um, from a traditional methodology in a solo practice with a senior dentist and a, a young associate buying in or buying out. Um, so let me say one more thing, because um, I'm not going to dive into restricted stock units, and profits, interest units. We've done that on a, uh, a prior podcast. I will tell you that um, when we build uh, associate equity models, be it profits, interest, or be it uh, restricted stock, and when we build them either at a practice level or a DSO level, whatever the, the methodology is that we use, profits, interest, or restricted stock, we can include something we call a capital call up front. And a capital call is simply a nominal buy-in amount, okay, for an associate to get the program started and, and to get um, them uh, vested in their partnership status immediately. So you've heard us talk about vesting schedules and how when somebody earns equity, uh, it, it gradually becomes theirs over time, usually about a five-year period, um, but it vests gradually and that's the retention mechanism. But if you have somebody who's been with you for a while um, or somebody who's just really under some level of urgency to become a partner, what you can often do in an RSU or a, or a profits interest unit model is to offer them the, the opportunity up front to buy up to 50,000 or 100,000 or $200,000 worth of company equity uh, at the onset of the program. The idea here is one, when they buy in, 
they are immediately a partner. There is no vesting schedule on that capital call. They are giving you cash for shares in your business, and they are immediately a partner. The rest of their, the balance of their earn-in over time is under a vesting schedule and everything else. But the initial capital call amount is certainly um, uh, immediate equity to them um, and immediate cash proceeds to you. How you can use those cash proceeds are much like I referenced before. Same uh, contingencies apply on a lot of that. Check your banking documents and everything. But the capital call provision is a way to accelerate some of those earned equity models and get people to an immediate partnership status. The idea here in a best case scenario is that whatever you allow them to buy in at um, upfront on a capital call is a small enough amount that they could come up with the funds on their own without having to go to a bank and qualify for a loan. All right. So it's a friends and family, or maybe it's raising, rating their, their piggy banks or investment accounts otherwise, or, um, you know, qualify for a personal loan from Lightstream or something like that. What well, some of those banks um, that are unsecured. So there, there are things like that, that you can usually, if you had to borrow it, you could qualify for probably up to a hundred thousand dollars, or at least most people could, um, or you can coddle together the funds um, to, to come up with that on an initial buy-in, but it would not impact or cross-collateralize the existing business. So when we talk about hybrid approaches, that's a little bit of a buy-in with an earn-in on top of it. The reason I wanted to take a second and talk about some of that here is because I don't want you to think that, we've, that, that our opinion is that we find no merit whatsoever on buy-ins. We do. We just look at it a little bit differently than what you would call the traditional context. I've gotten a lot of questions about this recently um, from some podcasts I've been on and 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 otherwise. So I felt like it might be meritus of a uh, uh, of a a podcast episode on our own. And I, I hope you've found that to be educational, or maybe that it solved some of the, the questions that you might have had as as you're thinking about how to. Um, how to attack the associate uh, uh, issue from your level. So hope you uh, got something out of that. If, you, if I created more confusion, feel free to shoot me an email. You can always re reach me at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Stick around, we'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. So that was uh, that was fun. A little bit of a different dive into uh, the world of associate equity, and you know, I think that uh, hopefully it was uh, enlightening for some of you at at some level. Um, it was so great uh, to see so many familiar faces um, uh, once again in Phoenix uh, last week. Um, I had the privilege; we had the privilege of uh, attending the Dental Success Summit with Dr. Mark Costas and his entire team, uh, and they are beyond wonderful. They've been they've been a great early partner of ours, and the Walker and I really appreciate it. And I, I was um, thrilled at the opportunity to be able to share some guidance around associate equity and recruiting associates and things like that. And feedback that I got from the uh, uh, the audience um, was was really, really nice. And it was good to see a lot of familiar faces and some friends there as well. Um, for those who, who did attend, I, I hope you got something out of that uh, presentation. For those of you who didn't attend or have never attended, 
the Dental Success Summit. It's always held in Phoenix uh, at the JW Marriott, and it's always held uh, toward the beginning part of the month of June. I encourage you to put it on your schedule for, for next year. And I think uh, Mark is looking at doing some additional summits in the fall, one of which is going to be with us. It's going to be di different from his traditional um, uh, summit in that we are going to uh, focus more on the emerging group practice space. I think a lot of what Mark talks about from a leadership and a culture standpoint plays directly into that. And obviously, a lot of his members are looking to, to build group practices. And you know that that's what we're all about. So we're really excited to be partnering with him. And we announced this on the stage uh, Friday um, uh, at the conference in, in Phoenix. Um, and for those who weren't there or haven't uh, seen any word about it yet, it's going to be trickling out. But I would tell you to mark your calendars for October 5th through 7th, October 5th through 7th. That's a Wednesday through Friday. Um, we are firming up details with the hotel, some spaces and things like that. Um, it is, we're intending to host it in Denver uh, once we get the hotel solidified and, and everything, we'll we'll firm that up as well as the hotel details with room blocks and everything like that. There's going to be an early bird registration for it, um, and you'll you're going to want to stay close to not only this podcast but also our news feeds because we're going to limit this thing um, probably to 150 people. Um, we want the first conference together to be kind of a manageable number um, and, and not get overwhelmed by it. So seating is limited and we're going to um, limit it further to only three people per group. So hopefully be able to uh, um, allow for enough uh, different groups to attend. And we're certainly looking forward to um, uh, the impact that's going to make. So Again, keep your eyes and ears peeled on that. There'll be a lot more information forthcoming, uh, as well as some pre-registration links and all kinds of uh, good stuff like that as soon as they come online. But I figured I'd go ahead and plant the flag here on the podcast about October 5th through 7th, um, which is the uh, Polaris and Dental Success Summit for the fall, most likely again in Denver. Um, and hotel information will be forthcoming as well as a registration link and everything like that. So hopefully uh, you can join us in the fall. Well, I had a ton of fun on today's show. I hope you did as well. And as always, I, I really hope you do find it to be educational. If you do, please leave us a rating, uh, a review, a comment, anything along those lines. It helps us on SEO and show rankings and everything like that. You can find us on any of the um, podcast uh, uh, sites like Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, um, or, or anywhere else, I feel like, in the world these days. If you got a question, you know, always know you can submit it to me directly at parent at polarishealthcarepartners.com. And of course, if you want to find out more about us, you can find out more on our website at www.polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We will see you on the next episode.